Let's pray together. Father God, as we approach your word and as we have been working our way through this book of Malachi, we recognize that in the people of Israel in the Old Testament, with their struggles, with their joys, with their difficulties, we see glimpses of ourselves. We see, Lord, that we too are a people uh, who desire you on our own terms. <laughs> we are a people who fall short in a variety of ways. We are a people who are called to renew our faithfulness to you. And God, we ask that you would continue to do that sharpening work in us. Today, as we conclude this series, Father, recall to our memories the things that we have learned. Recall to our emotions the things that we have felt. And help us, God, to commit ourselves anew to you as a result of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. To renew something is to revive or to recover or to begin again. To renew something is to make it new again. We renew things all the time. We renew contracts for different types of services rendered or different types of equipment that we rent. We renew the leases that we have in our apartments if you live in an apartment building. And we even renew or recover relationships. We all do this in a variety of ways. A friend of mine named Rick was sharing a story with me a little over a year ago of the renewal of some relationships that he had with men that he had served in the Vietnam War with. After the war, they stayed in touch, some of them, but another, a number of them went their separate ways. These were brothers in arms. These were guys that dealt with the matters of life and death. But over time and distance, they lost track until one of these reunions came along for veterans of the Vietnam War. And he said it was amazing the renewal of relationship that happened in no time at all. Men I hadn't seen for 30 or 40 years. We picked up right where we left off, and that renewal was significant. Others of us have experienced a breakdown in relationships. Maybe we were close with a friend or a family member, and something happened. And through hurt, or through maybe the fault of theirs, or a fault of your own, that relationship became broken, and you, in turn, distanced yourself from that person. But as time went on, your heart softened. You began to think back on what you had in that relationship, and you missed it. And so this compelled you to reach out, to extend an apology, to begin to rebuild. And before you know it, your relationship with that person is renewed. For some of us, we have healthy relationships, but still the idea of renewing, formalizing in some way a renewal is appropriate or even meaningful to us. As a pastor, you can imagine from time to time I get requests for people who want to renew their wedding vows. Most of the time, these aren't people who have gone through a difficult patch in marriage and then want to sort of recommit themselves. The vast majority of times it's people who would say, things are great. But there's still something significant in formally renewing this faithfulness that we have toward each other. 
The idea of renewing relationships or renewing faithfulness in relationships is common to us. And it is the thrust of this entire book of Malachi that we've been going through. And just like there are many reasons to renew relationships throughout the course of our lives with other people, these same types of reasons exist for our relationship with God. Some of us are like the Vietnam vet who were acquainted to God some time ago and through the course of time and distance sort of veered away. Others of us made a conscious choice to say, God, I don't want to follow you your works and your ways. I want to do things my own way. And as a result, we've lived in that dynamic for a while, but God in his kindness is honing us down, shaving off the rough edges, calling us back toward relationship with him. For many of us, we say, my relationship with God is good. I'm really thankful for that. Every day I try to renew my relationship with him. This is part of the life of a Christian. I rely on Jesus for what he's done. And I follow him to the very best of my ability. But even in those instances, there's something about formalized renewal that is meaningful or significant for certain seasons of our lives, especially as we do that together. And so as this book of Malachi wraps up, we see that this is precisely what some of God's people are compelled to do. They've heard what God wants of them. They've turned away from the ways that they've distanced themselves. And now, many of them seek a renewal of this relationship. And so open your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 3, verses 13, through chapter 4, verse 6. These are the last verses of the Old Testament. From here, God goes into Bible silence for 400 years. And so we pay attention to these last words very carefully. This is what it says in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act 
says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah to you, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord that comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So after working out or working through areas in their lives of spiritual apathy, of half-hearted worship, of unfaithfulness in their marriages, in challenging God's justice, in unfaithful giving back to God in their tithes and offerings. Now, this book of Malachi comes to a close. Throughout the book, we've seen how God's people have become unfaithful. And here, in the final section, we see this repeated theme. The people have spoken harshly against God, verses 13 to 15. Look at it with me. And they have said, it's vain to serve God. I mean, what profit is it to keep his charge? Especially when the evildoers around us succeed and they don't even follow God. They put him to the test and they escape. What's the point (laughs) in following him? And it sounds eerily familiar to their previous charge in chapter 2, verse 17, when they said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? They are questioning why God allowed certain things to happen, and in the end, when they think about following God, they're asking the very simple question, what's in it for me? And at the core, their issue, we might say, is a sight issue. Because sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing and why he allows certain people to succeed in the way that he does. I mean, the truth of the matter is, despite all of our best efforts, despite the incredible advances in technology that we have, despite the fact that we live in the most educated age In history, despite the fact that we live in a sophisticated society, each and every one of us are extremely limited in our ability to see all facets of the reality around us. It's hard to see. We are, by nature, short-sighted. And when we can't see clearly, and when we feel like we're doing things the right way and we're not rewarded, that can be very frustrating. Yesterday was February 20th. And in case you live in a cave, you know that it was about 60 degrees outside. And as I sat in my office yesterday morning getting some work done on a couple different things, I had one thing on my mind. Golf. I like to play golf. I'm not very good at golf. I don't play often enough to get any better than I am. It's usually pretty much the same story. But 
I enjoy golf because every round of golf contains those one or two shots that you hit perfectly. And it keeps you coming back to the next round. You don't play golf because you're a consistently low scorer. You play golf because every round there's one or two shots where you say, oh, that was fantastic. I think I can do that almost every time. One of the most frustrating things about golf is when you hit one of those shots that you consider to be perfect, but there's really no reward for it. I can think of a number of occasions standing in the tee box looking straight down the fairway at a hard dog leg left. You can't see the green, you can't see the pin, the fairway turns sharply. And there's trees between you and the direction that you need to go. And I'm thinking to myself, standing on a tee box, I wonder if I can cut the corner. No, I should probably... I should probably just take out my 5-iron or 4-iron and try to hit it down the middle. But, but if I take out my driver and I hit it high enough over the trees, and if I hit it hard enough so it clears the woods, and if I hit it straight enough, it should land in the... I bet you I could cut off 150 yards off this hole. Yeah, oh, the temptation's too much. I'm going to cut the corner. And you take out your driver, and you don't line up down the middle like you should. Instead, you're, you're looking hard left, right into the woods. And with all of your might, you say, really get a hold of this one, Nick. And you swing, and whack! <gasps> and the ball rises. And it clears the trees. And it descends softly into the distance and you lose sight of it on the other side of the woods. And you say to yourself, I just hit the perfect golf shot. I, I am so giddy I can't wait till these other three schmucks hurry up and hit theirs so I can go see how good it is. And so the second guy comes up and he sees that what just happened. And so he takes out his driver and he tries to cut the corner but pff, right into the woods. And the third guy gets up and says, I'm not doing that. He takes out his five iron and hits it down the middle, and so does the fourth guy. And you get into your cart as fast as you can, and you bomb down the fairway, and you take that hard left, and you see the opening where your ball should be. And where it should be, there is this nice meandering creek going through the middle of the fairway that you could not see clearly from the tee box. You did it right. You did what you were supposed to do to succeed. You hit the perfect shots. And yet, the guy who hit it in the trees scores lower than you on that hole. When you can't see clearly in this life, and others succeed despite the fact that you were the one who was faithful, to God. This is incredibly frustrating. And it's in those moments where you are tempted to say things like the Israelites are saying, is this even worth it? I mean, what's in it for me? You're tempted, like the Israelites, to move from a God-centered life 
to a self-centered life. But hear this. You don't follow God because of what's in it for you. You follow God because of who he is. You don't follow God because of what's in it for you. You follow God because who he is. He is our perfect and holy and eternal king. He's true. He's mighty. He's powerful. He has a crystal clear vision of all things throughout the course of all time. And he's faithful. Even when it doesn't look like he's faithful in your limited perspective. And your faithfulness to God is displayed in how you respond when things don't go the way that you think they ought to. Or when you aren't rewarded in the way you think you should be. It's hard to see in this life. Our perspective is so limited. And when we think of our relationship as, with God as something that we get something out of, then we ultimately become frustrated with who he is. Now because it's hard to see, God gives these Israelites and he gives us a glimpse into the future. He gives us a warning and an encouragement. He knows we can't see. And so he says, I'm just going to give you a little glimpse and you will see fully one day. Look with me at the text. The glimpse that he gives us is the glimpse of eternity and judgment day before that. He says there will be a day when we'll see fully. Verse 18. This is after the people make their commitment. We'll come back to that in a second. He says, then once more you shall see. <laughs> what are you going to see? You're going to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. These ones that you claim, there's no distinction today. You're going to see the distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And this distinction is then met with God's blessing or God's justice. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 1, for those who are wicked, those who don't serve God, it says there's a day that's coming. This is the day of the Lord. This is judgment day. And on that day, the judgment will be severe. It's like a burning oven for the arrogant and evildoers. They should be set ablaze and made to be like stubble. And the image is sobering in its nature. And it reminds us of the picture that God creates of this day in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we see what's referred to as the great white throne judgment. This is the day when we'll all see clearly what we have done and particularly the blessings for the righteous and the judgment for the wicked. And let me read it for you. It's sobering in its thought, but it serves as a warning to God's people to remember what they will be seeing. He says in Revelation 20 verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A difficult thing to conceive of, that a loving God would judge some of his creatures in this way. And it highlights the reality that we talked about just a couple weeks ago. That God is very gracious in his waiting for this judgment. That each one of us, according to our deeds, deserves such a punishment. And yet God continues to wait. (laughs) He waits to show his mercy. He waits to show his grace. He waits because he's drawing more and more and more people to himself. But he's not going to wait forever. There will be a day when he judges evil and transgressions. His holiness will not allow him to let them pass. And for us, we're reminded as we read that, there is no middle ground. You can't fake it. (laughs) You might get by for a while faking your relationship with God to those around you, but in the end, the one who sees all and knows all knows exactly where you stand with regard to him. And he will judge accordingly and bless accordingly. For those of us who are his, he moves past that and he gives us a little motivation. We can't see clearly in this life, but here's a glimpse of what eternity will look like. He says, chapter 3, verse 17, I will make them my treasured possession and I will be sparing them like a father spares his son. God's grace and mercy, like we would exercise that same grace and mercy to our own children. He goes on to say, in chapter 4, verse 2, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you will be like leaping calves from the stall. I mean, think about a leaping calf let out of the stall. Young, energetic, excited, joyful, playful, and happy. Wandering through the field. And yet at the very same time, moving over the ashes of the wicked. He goes on to say that part of his work will be to turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And for those of us with broken homes and broken families, this idea of healing family relationships as part of the powerful work of the gospel is incredibly hopeful and encouraging because the hurts attached there are significant. The image is on one side an image of terror and of judgment and on the other side of joy and mercy and hope And healing. And so we cannot see clearly in our present situation. But in the end of this book, there's a recognition 
of warning and of motivation. A glimpse of the end. And so for a people who've been confronted with their sins over the last number of chapters, they have a choice to make. How will they respond? And for a number of them, not all of them, unfortunately, but a number of them, we see that they make a specific type of response. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. Even though we can't see clearly in this life, we can commit to following God. It says that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That any spirituality in this life, any knowledge of God that you can have begins with appropriate fear or reverence for God. It's the part of the core of our faith, the nature of faith itself. To fear God means that you recognize God for who he really is. It means that you have an appropriate reverence for this one who's completely other than us. And he's infinitely more severe in his nature. It means that you recognize that God is not someone that can be manipulated or tricked or made the fool. Rather, fearing God means that we come to the recognition because of who he is that my entire life is to be oriented or positioned toward him. My work, my family, my pleasures, my money, my skills, my hopes, and even my fears, all of me. To recognize who God is and to fear him and to esteem his name means that when we do some self-analysis and we realize that there are some areas of our life that we hold back from him, when we say, God, that's off limits for you. I'll give you this and this and this, but not this that we are willing to make a change and surrender ourselves to him completely. And so the question becomes, what do you need to change? What are the areas of your life that you've said, God, that's off limits? What are the areas, even as we've looked in this book of Malachi, where you say, That's not for you. Because to renew faithfulness to God means that we totally and completely surrender ourselves to him. We don't worship God because of what we get out of it. We worship God because of who he is. The text is interesting in how these people respond. If you look at verse 16, it says that they spoke with one another about these things. 
You know, there's something significant about following the Lord together. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14 remind us of this. It talks about the family of God and it says, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now surely in this nation of Israel, and surely in a church like Old North Church, we could take a survey of where we are in our relationships with God on an individual level, and we would get as many answers as there are people in the pews. Every single one of us is in a slightly different place, whether that's complete and total surrender to complete rebellion and everywhere in between. We all have different struggles and temptations and fears and hurts and points of rebellion against the Lord. And their commitment was not one of specific individual response, so that surely had to be part of it. In one way, you might look at them and say, some of these people were like the Vietnam vets (laughs) who just lost touch with each other over time. They were acquainted with God and they sort of drifted away. Others of them were ones who actively rebelled. Some of them were ones who things were going really well and they wanted to renew their faithfulness and commitment to him anyway. But all of them renewed their relationship with God together. There's something significant about a group of people renewing faithfulness together that far supersedes in some ways the individual one-on-one transactions that you do with God. And these things aren't mutually exclusive from one another. Actually, they work in concert with each other. And God's response to them is one of great encouragement. As they surrendered themselves to them, to him, all of themselves. They went through this formal renewing of faithfulness with the book of remembrance. His response, verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine. What a wonderful promise. To be found in the possession of the almighty God. I mean, think about it. The most loving one. (laughs) The most powerful one. The one who lasts forever. Those who are his are loved and protected forever. And in the deepest recesses of our souls... Each and every one of us long to be loved and protected forever. And that is what God promises for those who are his. He recalls to their memory, Exodus 19, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will make me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. For a short-sighted people who wander their way through life looking for what's best for them, the idea of being loved and protected forever because God owns them is radically 
freeing, and radically life-changing. And that's exactly what he promises for those who are committed to him in this way. That is, my friends, true security that you can find nowhere else. And in closing, he gives them another glimpse, another thing that they can't yet see but will certainly benefit from. He tells them that before this day of judgment, the prophet Elijah will come to them again. And this allusion to the prophet Elijah is an allusion to John the Baptist in preparation for the coming of Jesus. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament had a specific ministry of preparing God's people, of confronting them of their sin, of helping them get to a place of right disposition and humility before God in preparation for the work that he was going to do in their midst. So too, some hundreds of years later, he would miraculously send John the Baptist to confront people of their sin, to prepare the way, to help them get dispositionally in a place where they could receive what God would do among them, this time in the person of his son, Jesus. And this son, Jesus, would radically change the vision for who God claims to be his own people. Because through Jesus, no matter what you've done, where you've been, or who you are, you can still be a treasured possession of God. 1 John 4, 14 and 15 says, we've seen and we testify That the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. To abide in God. To be his. To be owned. (laughs) To be loved. To be protected. Forever. That's the promise of God for those who are found in Jesus. So what does all of this mean for Old North Church? Well, I think we could probably summarize that there are four types of people in the building today. Type number one, some of us are just becoming introduced to God for the very first time. And the idea of being loved and protected forever by God sounds pretty good to you. And if you're in that place today, then you know, and you need to know, that your relationship with God happens, the starting line of this relationship, when you recognize that he is God and you are not. (laughs) And as a result, you need forgiveness for the ways in which you've sinned against him. He offers this forgiveness freely and graciously through his son Jesus, that if you put your faith in him, you become one of his children, and begin to walk down this journey of following him with your life. That's a decision that you make. And if you're thinking about making that decision, I would encourage you to think about it carefully because it changes everything. It changes everything. I think the second type of person in the building today is probably one who was acquainted with God some time ago and has drifted or wandered throughout the course of their years. But God has been calling back to become reacquainted with him. It wasn't intentional rebellion. It just sort of happened that way. And God's calling us to renew our faithfulness to him. I think the third type of person is probably the one who 
made a specific choice to walk away from God. Maybe somebody hurt you in a church. Maybe you had a bad experience. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you're having a hard time reconciling this short-sightedness in reality with the goodness of God. And so you've just done it your own way instead. But you find yourself here today and God is calling you back into relationship with him. He says, I don't want you just to wander out there on your own. Renew faithfulness to me. I think there are probably a number of people in our church where we would say, my relationship with God is good. I, I, I'm surrendered to him. I try to follow him. I try to fight the sin in my life. I try to serve him with my life. And yet, there's still even a part for those of us where formal renewal together is important. To renew something is to revive it. To begin again. To make it new. And at the heart of renewal with God is surrender. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come Please root from my heart all of those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall you make a place, the place of your feet, glorious. And then shall my heart have no need for the sun to shine in it. For thyself will be the light of it. And there should be no more night there. Malachi calls us to renew our faithfulness. And so I want to ask our worship team to come. I want to pray together and to give you some time to pray individually. But at the heart of these points of surrender that we've just touched on today and that we've touched on for a number of weeks, I encourage you, as the Lord has been convicting, shaping, molding, challenging you, his sincere desire is for you to surrender <laughs> to him completely. And so let's pray together and do just that. Heavenly Father, we recognize that our sight in this life is so limited We recognize, Lord, that as we go our own way, we do so very often to our own hardship or peril. And that we too have said harsh things against you. But God, no matter where we are of those four types of people, you're calling us to renew, to revive, to make new our relationship with you. And so in the quietness of our hearts, we surrender to you the things that we hold on to so tightly.
Lord, we surrender our cynicism to you. God, we surrender our desires to chart our own course, to be the lords over our own lives. God, we surrender those sinful desires and actions that are so pleasing to us in the moment, but we know are not pleasing to you. And we pray, God, that you would please forgive us and give us resolve to live differently. God, we surrender our insatiable desire for pleasure and for recreation. God, we surrender our sense of security or anything or anyone other than you that we find our security in. God, today as a people, as we confess our sins, as we surrender these areas of our lives to you and many more, we symbolically have a book of remembrance in which we say, Lord, we fear you and we esteem your name. And we desire you and we want to be your treasured possession and we recognize the goodness of of your son Jesus and his mercy and grace and how that totally redefines our existence through his forgiveness. God, and we follow him. We want to follow him. Help us to do so. We renew our faithfulness to you in this way. In his name, amen. Friends, I want to ask you to stand and sing with me. We're going to close our service today singing a song that many of you know and have heard. It's an old hymn called Take My Life and Let It Be. And as you look through the different verses of this song, you'll realize that the whole song is about surrender and renewing faithfulness to God. The whole song is, God, take these different areas of my life, my time, my talent, my treasure, my will, my desires, my words, my resources, God, take it. It's all yours. I am all yours. <laughs> so sing loudly and sing as an expression of the renewal of your faithfulness.